NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Butterflies in your tummy, head in the clouds, juices flowing, got that fire down below. Might as well admit it, you're addicted to love. But wait, today we offer a genuine scientific explanation for your cravings and why it all seems so complicated. What I find most remarkable about these three drives, the sex drive, romantic love, and attachment, is that they're often unconnected. You can feel a powerful sense of attachment to a long-term partner while you feel intense romantic love for somebody else, while you feel the sex drive for a whole range of people. So this is what gets the human animal in so much trouble. It's the nature and chemistry of romantic love and another addiction that's big in America, oil. President Bush wants us to kick the habit. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Bush sure didn't sound like a Texas oil man in his State of the Union address. Keeping America competitive requires affordable energy. And here we have a serious problem. America is addicted to oil, which is often imported from unstable parts of the world. Instead of calling for an expansion of domestic oil supplies, as he has in past speeches, the president talked about alternative energy, better batteries to power hybrid cars, and a more efficient form of ethanol. Breakthroughs on this and other new technologies will help us reach another great goal, to replace more than 75% of our oil imports from the Middle East by 2025. By applying, by applying the talent and technology of America, this country can dramatically improve our environment, move beyond a petroleum-based economy, and make our dependence on Middle Eastern oil a thing of the past. But critics note that many presidents have pledged to cut foreign oil and failed. And U.S. imports from the Middle East are only a little less than 20 percent of our total oil imports. Our Washington correspondent Jeff Young joins us now to sift through the rhetoric and talk about where the president's proposals might be headed. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, Steve. Jeff, moving beyond a petroleum economy. Now, that sounds like it should be music to the ears of people who've been pushing for alternative energy. What do they say? Uh, well, you'd think, but it's it's a mixed reaction. I, I spoke with a number of people in the renewable and alternative energy field and groups wanting more biofuels, especially this new ethanol that uses uh, things like corn stalks. They're excited by this. So one group called it visionary. But that was the minority voice here. The more typical response to this was, you know, the president has some nice rhetoric, but he's short on substance and a little late to this game. Jerome Ringo leads the Apollo Alliance. It's a coalition of labor, environment and business groups who want more renewable energy. And Ringo was, uh, shall we say, underwhelmed. It was just too little from the president. Uh, I think he was only trying to get on a train that's already pulled out from the station. The president realizes that. So I think that uh, though his idea is a good one, it was a modest proposal at best. Why such a lukewarm response? Well, partly because this is just not a very big increase in spending compared to other energy spending. I mean, you remember the Energy Act from last year? It gave uh, nuclear and fossil fuels about $7 billion in uh, tax breaks and subsidies. Well, from what we've learned so far from the Department of Energy about these uh, new increases, it's about $524 million compared to the current fiscal year. And a little more than half of that is going to uh, so-called clean coal technology programs. 
Uh, that makes the mining industry happy, but clean coal is not generally considered alternative energy. So you take that out, that leaves about $190 million for things like wind, solar, biofuels, and uh, hydrogen. Not big money, maybe, but big increases? Well, it is big for some sectors. Um, the president clearly is continuing his push for research into hydrogen and fuel cells. Uh, they're getting a $53 million increase here. Uh, solar is also a winner. Uh, folks at the Solar Energy Industries Association say this would boost solar R&D by about 80 percent. Um, however, Bush budgets in previous years had held solar research flat. So this big increase, if it happens, would more or less just return them to the funding they had enjoyed, say, a decade or so ago. And that's why the American Council on Renewable Energy is less enthusiastic about this. They call this a relatively minor increase, and they suspect there may be cuts to other renewable programs uh, buried somewhere else in the budget. But, you know, it's, it's not just the money that's drawing the criticism here. It's that uh, there's little policy to go along with it. And I talked about this with Phil Sharp. He's a former congressman. He now leads Resources for the Future, a nonpartisan think tank here in Washington. What is missing here are additional incentives, uh, a reform of the fuel economy standards that will help make sure that what technology is developed already out there actually gets used for the benefit of the economy or for fuel efficiency. Now, Jeff, I I believe there are other proposals on hybrid cars and biofuels that uh, are in the Congress right now. Uh, Do these proposals get a boost from what the president talked about? I think that's a very good possibility. There's a bill that has strong bipartisan support that's similar to what the president's outlined here, except it has more market incentives, and the sponsors uh, want the president to get on board. And, uh, you know, also just looking around at the the public mood on energy these days, it it seems like uh, the kind of atmosphere where a politician would want to look like he's doing something on this. Yeah, I mean, everybody's talking about what high gas prices, high home heating oil prices and and record profits from the oil companies. ExxonMobil recently posted a profit of what, some thirty six billion dollars? Yeah, and don't forget it's election year for Congress. So you add that up, and I think you have a good chance for more market incentives for ethanol and hybrid cars. Uh, However, as far as actually raising fuel efficiency standards, uh, the administration is still opposed to that, and I think it's still a, a long shot. And if you talk to a lot of energy analysts, they'll tell you, hey, if you're serious about addressing an oil addiction, well, uh, raising fuel efficiency standards is probably your your first step on any 12-step program. You know, Jeff, this speech was also interesting for what the president did not say. Uh, For example, I didn't hear his call for more oil drilling. And I also heard very little about uh, Hurricane Katrina's effects on energy. Uh, How did people respond to that? Well, a lot of people have remarked on this uh, fairly important shift in rhetoric, uh, but that does not mean that that's the end of those old issues. Uh, we're definitely going to see uh, more pushing for drilling in the Arctic Refuge, uh, more push for uh, offshore drilling. Uh, those old fights are going to be back. But uh, there's also going to be a new fight uh, pertaining to uh, Hurricane Katrina and, and energy, and that is uh, just who gets the money from uh, drilling. In the wake of Hurricane Katrina, Louisiana's Democrat Democratic Senator Mary Landrieu has just been hammering away on this issue. A fair share of the billions of dollars that our state generates right off of our shores to keep the Treasury of the United States full and the lights on from New York to California to Chicago. 
So what Landrieu's arguing is if her state got more of the royalties from offshore drilling, well, then the state could cover some of the costs of storm recovery. But uh, that's a major source of federal revenue. And if you tamper with that, well, you're going to make a lot of powerful people uh, very uneasy. Jeff Young is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. As we just heard, President Bush is promising more funds for research to develop cars powered by hydrogen. It's not the first time Mr. Bush has pushed hydrogen as a technical fix for the nation's energy woes. In his State of the Union address back in 2003, he targeted $1.2 billion to work on getting hydrogen fuel cell vehicles to market. A simple chemical reaction between hydrogen and oxygen generates energy, which can be used to power a car, producing only water, not exhaust fumes. With a new national commitment, our scientists and engineers will overcome obstacles to taking these cars from laboratory to showroom so that the first car driven by a child born today could be powered by hydrogen and pollution-free. To gauge where we stand in hydrogen fuel cell technology, we turn to Bob Rose. He heads the Breakthrough Technologies Institute and directs the U.S. Fuel Cell Council, the business association for the fuel cell industry. Welcome to Living on Earth, Mr. Rose. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So the president has long talked about increasing research funding for alternative vehicles, including that money he called for in 2003. Has this just been talk, or has he made good on that promise? Well, I think the president deserves some credit for making good, at least in his budget submissions to Congress. Uh, he has uh, used that $1.2 billion as his roadmap, and, and every year there has been a, a moderately increasing amount of money Uh, proposed for hydrogen in fuel cells. The challenge we have is that uh, Congress has not always uh, given him everything he asked and and in some cases has redirected a significant portion of that money to favored local programs, otherwise known as the pork barrel programs. Now, as I understand it, and some critics say this, it may well be some 20 years before a hydrogen fuel car is commercially viable. It only took us, what, nine years to put a man on the moon when we decided to do that. Why is this project taking so long? Well, one wag said it was easier to put a man on the moon. Uh, I'm not so sure, but uh, uh, I think there are a lot of factors. Uh, This is an industry that's already entrenched in the marketplace, and so uh, while I think the auto industry understands that uh, developing hybrid vehicles in the short term and hydrogen vehicles in the longer term is the right strategy, Uh, Certainly, they're all committed to hydrogen vehicles. Uh, You know, there's a certain tension there. They're making money in the marketplace right now. So could one do it in nine years if one uh, devoted, say, $30 billion rather than $1 billion to it? Well, you can't rush science, but you can hurry technology along, and it's possible that we could accelerate this effort. On the other hand, there are some things that need to be done and that need to be some problems that need to be solved that are going to take us some time. How is the hydrogen research uh, development faring at this point? I mean, okay, Mr. Bush asks for more funding, uh, but how well is the process doing? If you just look at the research, there has been substantial progress, particularly on fuel cell cost and durability. Hydrogen storage remains a a challenge, and there are a lot of people uh, pursuing an enormous number of ideas on that subject. Uh, but if you if you look away from the research for a minute and look at the kinds of vehicles that the auto industry itself is uh, developing and putting on the road for tests, uh, a lot of the problems seem to be on their way to solution. For example, Honda just showed a car last fall at the uh, auto show uh, that achieves 350-mile range, basically with technology that's more or less off the shelf today. They have made some uh, modifications and uh, some improvements on it, but 
350-mile range is a, is a very good range. It's uh, certainly better than a Ford 150 will get you. Uh, the uh, the cost issue seems to be uh, going away. Uh, uh, General Motors has said it, uh, that cost will not be a barrier. But I think the most significant benchmark is that the auto industry is promising again. You know, back in the 90s, some of the auto companies said, well, we're going to solve this problem in 10 years, and it's proved to be tougher than that. But if you look at what the auto industry is saying today, General Motors is saying we'll have the technology ready for commercial production by 2010. Ballard, the leading independent engine maker, is saying pretty much the same thing. Daimler Chrysler is saying 2012. Honda just put out a press release saying that it would begin manufacturing fuel cell vehicles in small numbers in three or four years. So uh, it, it's, it seems to me that that is much better a benchmark of our progress than uh, the government's research or indeed the, uh, uh, the hopes and fears of uh, the various commentators around the world. Bob Rose is executive director of the Breakthrough Technologies Institute. He also directs the U.S. Fuel Cell Council, the Business Association for the Fuel Cell Industry. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. The White House prefers he remain silent, but a prominent scientist continues to speak out about the imminent danger from climate change. A conversation with James Hansen is just ahead. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Back in 1988, as the United States was scorching under the impact of the worst drought in 50 years, the head of NASA's Institute for Space Studies, James Hansen, took the microphone at a U.S. Senate hearing on a sweltering summer day. It's time to stop waffling so much and say the evidence is pretty strong that the greenhouse effect is here, Dr. Hansen told senators as the network television cameras buzzed, and before long, people started talking about the phenomenon we now call global warming. James Hansen has continued to be outspoken through the years, and most recently he's been in the news, alleging that the Bush administration has been trying to silence his latest warnings about climate change. James Hansen joins me from New York City, where he still heads NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, and uh, has been studying climate change since what, 1967? Uh, yes, since I got my degree in 67. Now, Dr. Hansen, your uh, operation there at the Goddard Institute uh, recently proclaimed that 2005 was the warmest year on record. So what does that mean? Well, that means that the Earth's temperature is continuing to rise at a rapid rate. Um, over the last 30 years, the temperature has increased six-tenths of a degree Celsius, which is a bit more than one degree Fahrenheit. And Remarkably, we got back to the level that occurred in 1998 when a large El Nino jumped the temperature two-tenths of a degree above the previous warmest time. And now there is no El Nino to help it out. It's just uh, the global globe as a whole is warming. By the way, I should say at the outset of this that the things that I say are my personal view um, as a scientist with more than three decades' experience in this area but they don't represent uh, NASA policy or NASA position. What should we be concerned about now? Are we reaching a point of, of no return? I think that we are. I think that if we continue on the path of business as usual for another decade, it will be impractical to keep the global warming less than one degree Celsius. And the reason that's an important level is that's the most warming that we've had in the last 700,000 years and probably the last million years. We just don't have the data for the full million years. But 
we know that the changes in that period, although they're significant, they're probably something we could adapt to. But if you start talking two or three degrees Celsius, then you're really talking about a different planet from the one we know. There would be no sea ice in the Arctic in the summer and fall. That means the species that live there now, polar bears, the seals that live on sea ice and reindeer on the tundra, they would not be able to survive. So it's like the million-year flood. It's, uh, it's never happened in the past century. So we're talking uh, large regional changes. And for people, well, we can adapt. I mean, we can move from New York to Atlanta, and the climate is different, but we can certainly survive there, and we notice the difference. But for the wildlife and the trees and things that have adapted to a particular climate, they don't move as easily. It's not a good idea to have a climate change of that magnitude that quickly. What is the point, if there is such a point, where we won't be able to reverse the impact of global warming? And how do you measure that? Yeah, that's a very important question and one that we've only begun to debate the last year or so. And my argument is that that point is at a warming of about one degree Celsius warmer than it is now. That, to some people, is surprisingly small, and we're surprisingly close to it. I believe one time you gave a a talk at the Society of Environmental Journalists where you said, you know, the ice core samples out of Greenland show that we may have shifted from the previous ice age temperature regime to something much warmer in as short as 100 years or maybe even 30 years. I mean, are we looking at abrupt climate change in various places? Well, the, the rate of change right now is extremely high, and it's difficult to say how it compares with sometimes in the past when we don't have the time resolution. But I would be very surprised if there were more rapid rates of change in the past, because if you look at how fast the greenhouse gases are increasing. There's simply nothing in the record that approaches this. That's the big issue because if we continue on this path, which is business as usual with the rate of emission of greenhouse gases continuing to increase at a couple of percent per year, then uh, this century we would have warming of two and a half or three degrees Celsius. Once we get that kind of temperature, we'll be having sea level change at a rate of probably a few meters per century. So we would have a continually changing shoreline, which would be extremely difficult to live with. You can't easily adapt to that sort of a situation. So we really need to avoid staying on a business-as-usual scenario. We'd have to slow down the rate of growth of CO2 emissions and flatten that out within the next decade or two. And before the middle of the century, we would have to have a significantly decreasing rate of uh, CO2 emissions. In addition, we would have to get some absolute decrease in the other large climate forcings, and that means in particular methane and tropospheric ozone and uh, black soot. And what will happen to cities on the coast such as your city, New York or Miami or in Bangladesh or... That's the the real uh, tipping point that we have to worry about because the problem is uh, the changes now are small in the ice sheets uh, because there's an increase of snowfall in the interiors, which adds to the ice sheet, but there's an increased rate of melting at the edges. And so we don't see a very large change now, although in the past three years, Greenland has 
decreased in size at a rate of 160 cubic kilometers per year. That's significant. It's not a big sea level change. It's only 0.4 millimeters per year of sea level change, but it's a indication of where we're beginning to head. Now, recently you told the New York Times that the uh, Bush administration has been trying to to silence you about your findings on climate change and the implications for public policy. What's going on? Well, the public affairs office at NASA headquarters has put unusual restrictions on me with regard to speaking to the media, requiring that any request for interview be that I not respond to it, but rather just to send it to headquarters, and they would have the right of first refusal, which means someone there will actually do the interview rather than me. I have some objection to that because that policy has not been enforced on other people. So that's what the discussion has been about. The restrictions on communications have become unusually severe in the last year or two, and that certainly applies to other agencies as well as NASA. You don't hear a lot about it. I can understand that scientists are reluctant to complain about it. And, you know, most scientists are not affected because it's only the messages which are sensitive that are restricted. James Hansen, how, how concerned are you about getting fired now for speaking out? Uh, I am concerned about it. Uh, as The reason I was late for this interview was that I was checking with a lawyer what I could say and what I couldn't. But I'm uh, more concerned about how we will be judged in the future if we don't say what we know. And um, one fellow told me that history will not judge us very well if we pass tipping point at point of no return. And the public simply wasn't aware of the dangers that uh, we were facing. I don't want my grandchildren to say, uh, Opa understood what was going to happen, but uh, didn't succeed in uh, warning people about it. James Hansen is director of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies and leads the climate research there at Columbia University, where the Goddard Group is based. Thank you, sir. Thanks. In response to Dr. Hansen's allegations, Dean Acosta, Deputy Assistant Administrator for Public Affairs at the Space Agency, has told the press there has been no effort to silence Dr. Hansen and that NASA promotes openness and speaks with the facts. Climate change, climate disruption, global warming. Call it what you want, but it all means weather that is other than what you're used to. In the Washington, D.C. area, for example, there are already blossoms on some of the cherished cherry trees. And so far this winter, the region has seen below-average snowfall. But there has been enough of the white stuff to give commentator Bonnie Auslander something to think about. It felt good to have the winter sun warm my neck and to hear the sound of my shovel scraping along the concrete. But after 15 straight minutes of lifting heavy, wet snow, I had to take a break. Besides, I had errands to run, and I figured I'd do the rest when I came back. When I got home, though, the entire sidewalk was bare and surrounded by angled walls. It looked like someone had helped himself to a long strip of white sheet cake. It didn't take long to figure out who. My neighbor Jim had been by with his snowblower. I could do the whole sidewalk in just ten minutes with one of these babies, he boasted, when he appeared a few minutes later, patting the top of the contraption like it was a snow pile eating puppy. I thanked him, of course, but inside I felt disappointed. 
and amused. Here was my neighbor fondling a machine that filled our yards with a nerve-grating roar and the stench of gasoline. Yet this is the same sweet elderly man who always makes his dog, the real one I mean, sit still so my toddler can pat him, and who in the summer brings over cherry tomatoes from his garden. I was caught in a paradox. I knew I should be happy that Jim wouldn't be dropping dead from a heart attack after shoveling, and I recognized it was easy for me to romanticize snow removal because I didn't have to do it very often. And yet I mourned the older, quieter days, apparently more than he did all of which led me to ponder the flavors of silence. On an unmechanized Amish farm, it's the first thing that captures your attention, much like the saying that silence is the sound after the baby stops crying. Or is silence really just as simple as no noise? Once I heard a film editor explain that in the movies, a subtle sound conveys a feeling of silence so much better than the total absence of noise. For example, want to get across the surreal stillness after an explosion? You need to pump up the sound of tiny pebbles as they hit the ground. So maybe we need a small noise campaign so that we can all appreciate the quiet better, especially that muffled silence after a snowfall. I'll start. I'll wait till Jim goes inside, then sneak to my backyard walkway, still untouched by his machine. And I'm going to listen very, very carefully to the sound of silence to the sound of wind moving across the snow, to the sound of one woman shoveling. She sounds happy. Commentator Bonnie Auslander shovels to the sounds of silence at her home in Bethesda, Maryland. Secondhand tobacco smoke is now considered under California law to be an air pollutant, right up there with vehicle exhaust, arsenic, lead, and a host of other toxins. The state's Air Resources Board made it official on January 26th. The move is likely to lead to further limits on the places where smokers can light up in California. Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern reports. For these residents of the San Francisco Bay Area, the news made perfect sense. It doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I I think it's been known for quite a while that secondhand smoke is very toxic. No, it doesn't surprise me. I still can't believe that there's cigarettes on the market. No, it doesn't surprise me. I think it's certainly appropriate. It is a toxic pollutant, and uh, it should be regulated as such. And the research backs them up. It's shown for some time that secondhand smoke can cause lung and nasal cancers, heart disease, and asthma, among other illnesses. More recent research has found secondhand smoke to have negative health consequences for premenopausal women and their children. In April of last year, California environmental health scientists synthesized the results of the new research. Dr. Melanie Marty headed the study. Overall, looking at a large number of studies, I think it's easy to say that there's about a 1.6-fold increased risk for onset of asthma as a child in relation to exposure to secondhand smoke. You get about somewhere around 31,000 episodes of asthma in children in California from secondhand smoke exposure each year. Dr. Marty adds that even if you don't get asthma as a child from exposure to secondhand smoke, studies show you could develop it as an adult. 
Other studies Marty's team reviewed found a link between secondhand smoke and breast cancer in premenopausal women. There's 14 studies that we looked at that separated women out by age or menopausal status, and 13 of those 14 find an elevated risk, and at least half of those are what we term statistically significant. The average risk turns out to be about 68% higher risk for non-smoking women regularly exposed to secondhand smoke versus non-smoking women not exposed to secondhand smoke. Recent studies have linked exposure to secondhand smoke during pregnancy to premature birth and low birth weight, factors that can lead to a host of other infant health problems, including stunted heart growth, abnormal lung development, and sudden infant death syndrome. Dr. Stan Glantz is a professor of cardiology at the University of San Francisco and was on the panel that reviewed Dr. Marty's findings. A cigarette is like a little toxic waste dump on fire. I mean, that's the way I think of it. And it puts huge amounts of highly toxic chemicals into the environment, either indoors or outdoors. Dr. Glantz predicts this new research, especially the work supporting links between secondhand smoke and breast cancer, will lead people to change their behavior when it comes to tobacco smoke exposure. If you have a teenage daughter living at home, do you want to be increasing her risk of breast cancer just because you need to suck on a cigarette when you could just go outside and avoid that risk? And I think that this may well say to teenage girls who are going out on dates that they don't want their boyfriends smoking around them and they don't want to be going to places where people are smoking. And, you know, that's a very powerful message. David Howard, a spokesman for tobacco producer R.J. Reynolds, says there's no research to support California's move to declare secondhand smoke a toxic air contaminant. And for Californians? It's too early to tell what kind of regulations will result from the new designation. But smokers aren't likely to have police busting into their living rooms anytime soon. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern. You think you can kill me? How much do you bet? When I've had just one more cigarette I'll fling the packet away, away Fifty times in a week, I say Fling the packet away, away When I've had just one more cigarette Just ahead, it's chemistry, right? When we fall in love? And guess what? Researchers have identified some of the precise molecules involved and how understanding them could improve our love lives. First, this note on emerging science from Rachel Gottbaum. Bigfoot or big joke? The Malaysian government intends to find out. For several generations, indigenous groups in southern Malaysia have reported the existence of a 10-foot-tall, hairy, ape-like creature that walks on two legs. Amid several recent sightings and almost daily media headlines, local government officials have decided to investigate the Bigfoot rumors. The habitat of choice for the Asian Bigfoot is Endau Rampin National Park, a rainforest roughly the size of the island of Singapore, known for its monkeys and gibbons, but nothing that could possibly be confused with the giant biped reported. For the indigenous people of Endown Rampin, Bigfoot is nothing new. For generations, they called the creature the snaggletoothed ghost in folklore and tribal history. Government officials from the state of Johor plan to send two teams of scientists to scour the rainforest in search of the elusive Asian Bigfoot. One team is on a mission to track him down. If they find him, the other team intends to study him. And just in case the government needs some help, 
20 members of the Singapore Paranormal Investigators Group are lending their special expertise to the search to find out if the truth is really out there. And that's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Rachel Gottman. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Kashi, maker of all natural foods, founded on the belief that everyone has the power to make healthful changes. Kashi, seven whole grains on a mission. The Kresge Foundation, investing in nonprofits to help them catalyze growth, connect to stakeholders, and challenge greater support. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education. The W.K. Kellogg Foundation, From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We were friends first and grew into love later. (laughs) The butterflies and all that stuff, but it's kind of like something you can't describe. I got a very good dose of butterflies at the end as well, yeah. Yeah. Sort of the black butterflies rather than the white butterflies. I think every five minutes, like, oh, he's not calling me, he's not calling me, he's not calling me. But now, I just love to hear from him. It goes from lust to love and then to um, boringness. And then, uh, see you later. There's just too many men in this world. There's so many that it's just hard to settle for one. It is bizarre that I am this incredibly rational like this person and it's almost it's borderline obsessive the, the thought patterns that happen like after three months with this person it's just bizarre because I'm a very rational together person and and then I just think way too much about it it's just and it, yeah it is a bit crazy <laughs> I want a scientific answer please <laughs> and that's just what we have for you today a lesson in the chemistry of love just in time for Valentine's Day There's a host of new research uncovering the physiological mysteries about how people fall in love, how we stay in love, and how we feel when we lose that love. And at least one researcher thinks that falling in love is as basic and important in life as finding food and shelter. She is Dr. Helen Fisher, anthropologist and author of a number of books, including her latest entitled, Why We Love, The Nature and Chemistry of Romantic Love. Thanks for joining me. I'm delighted to be here. You call your book Why We Love. Well, you might as well ask, why do we exist? But, you know, it turns out from your research that this is more than just a philosophical question. It's also a scientific one. Tell me, please, about your research on this topic. I have the theory uh, that uh, we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. The sex drive being one, that craving for sexual gratification. The second is romantic love, that uh, in obsession, uh, the craving, the ecstasy, the focused attention, um, the motivation to win a particular mating partner, that, that early uh, uh, intense romantic love. And the third brain system is attachment, that sense of calm and security that you can feel with a long-term partner. And I, I decided that I'd already written quite a bit about the sex drive, and actually I'd written quite a bit about uh, attachment. So I I began to to think to myself, well, you know, this is probably the most powerful experience on earth, romantic love, and maybe I could get some people into a functional MRI brain scanner and see if I can't find out what happens, what what the chemistry actually is of this experience. So uh, an MRI a scanner, now this is what, nuclear magnetic resonance? You can see what goes on in someone's head. Yeah. What happens in um, uh, magnetic resonance imaging is that um, each 
brain region sucks up blood as it is working because it needs the glucose and the oxygen from the blood. And so if with this scanner, you can see which brain regions are sucking up the blood, which ones are working. And then if you know which region is working, and in fact, which cells in which region are working, and you know what those cells do for a living, then you can tell what's going on. And what we did is we put, um, I and my colleagues put uh, 32 people who were madly in love into this brain scanner, uh, 17 who were madly in love and their love was accepted, they were happily in love, and 15 who were had just been dumped, they had just been rejected in love. So, But both groups were intensely in love. So you're looking at the images of the brain, as people madly in love, these certain areas are stimulated. What does this mean chemically? I had hypothesized that we would find evidence for elevated activity of the dopamine system and the norepinephrine system. These are natural stimulants in the brain. They give you feelings of elation, giddiness, euphoria, focused attention, motivation, um, heightened energy, sleeplessness, loss of appetite. These are basic characteristics of romantic love. So I thought we would also find low activity of serotonin because Low activity of serotonin is associated with obsessive-compulsive behaviors, and certainly the main characteristic of romantic love is you can't stop thinking about this individual. It is an obsession. So that was my hypothesis as as I went in. What we ended up finding is um, activity in this ventral tegmental area in a region that actually makes dopamine and sends dopamine to many brain regions. We did not find activity of norepinephrine, but I really think that that's also involved. We just haven't found it yet. It doesn't mean it's not there. The reason I think norepinephrine will be involved is because it's norepinephrine that gives you what they call the sweaty palm syndrome, the, mm-hmm. the pounding heart, the dry mouth, the sweaty palms, the kinds of things that happen when you're really incredibly in love with somebody and don't know yet whether they love you. So romance is as important as eating? Drinking? Breathing? Well, it can be stronger than uh, all of those because some people give up all that in order to uh, to win somebody or, or get out of life when they don't win somebody. Um, most of us don't, though, of course, and eating and drinking is extremely important. I mean, you've got to survive. But you know what? I mean, I think that romantic love evolved for a very fundamental reason. Okay. I think it evolved to enable us to focus our mating energy on just one individual at a time, thereby conserving mating time and energy and starting the most important thing we'll do with our lives, which is forming a pair bond and raising it, uh, creating a child. I, I think the sex drive evolved to get you out there looking for a whole range of partners. I mean, you can have sex with somebody you're not in love with. And I think that attachment, that third brain system, that third drive, evolved to enable us to tolerate this individual at least long enough to rear rear a child together. So I think these three different drives, the sex drive, romantic love, and attachment, all are operating in all kinds of combinations to to direct our reproductive lives. And you ask me, is this more important than eating and drinking? Sure, it is. What about lust? Right. What about the the sex drive? What are the chemicals there? Are they different from uh, the romance chemicals? The main chemical um, of the sex drive is testosterone in both men and women. In fact, you know, you inject testosterone in any kind of animal and the sex drive goes up. And the brain system is different, too. I mean, there's at least five um, uh, brain scanning studies of the sex drive, and the various brain regions involved are, they overlap, but they're different from those regions associated with romantic love. So there's two different systems. But they interact. And that's what's so interesting to me. For example, you know, 
when you fall in love with somebody, suddenly that person becomes enormously sexually attractive to you. Three weeks ago, it was just a nice, another nice person at the office or in your social circle or at the gym, but suddenly everything they do becomes attractive to you. And I think that it is in part because elevated activity of the dopamine circuits associated with romantic love um, trigger testosterone and trigger the sex drive. So this is why it is that you suddenly become almost, uh, you know, uh, totally fixated sexually on somebody who you're in love with. What I find most remarkable about these three drives, the sex drive, romantic love, and attachment, is that they're often unconnected. You can feel a powerful sense of attachment to a long-term partner while you feel intense romantic love for somebody else, while you feel this sex drive for a whole range of people. So this is what gets the human animal in so much trouble. I bet. Now, (laughs) let's go back to lust or the sex drive and romance. You say that romance can kindle the sex drive. What about the other way around? Can lust lead to romance? Not always, of course. You know, uh, most liberated adults have copulated with somebody who they never fell in love with. In fact, they would have liked to have fallen in love with them and couldn't do it. But it certainly can happen. And it can happen, I think, in part because with orgasm, uh, there's a, 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 a spike of dopamine. It just shoots up and shoots down again. And um, that, I think, can help change the threshold for your ability to fall in love and just turn you over that uh, that edge. Also, with orgasm, um, you get a real flood in the brain of oxytocin and vasopressin, and these are the chemicals associated with attachment. So casual sex isn't always that casual. As a matter of fact, I think women are more vulnerable to, than men are because, as it turns out, um, seminal fluid has in it all the chemicals in it for the sex drive, the testosterone and estrogen, uh, oxytocin and vasopressin associated with attachment, and uh, dopamine and norepinephrine associated with romantic love. So a man is actually doing some chemical finagling <laughs> when he <laughs> deposits his sperm. So, you know, casual sex can be casual, but generally it's not. What are the chemicals involved with what you call attachment? Well, there's other uh, scientists who've studied this and this is some really elegant work on attachment in other uh, animals, uh, basically the prairie vole. A prairie vole is like a little field mouse, and there's been some wonderful studies that indicate that the basic hormones uh, and neurotransmitters actually are oxytocin and vasopressin. And these are chemicals that um, that women actually um, really put off when they are uh, delivering a child and the letting down of the milk. And they now realize that the oxytocin is also associated with mother-infant bonding. But these studies with prairie voles indicate that, that they are also associated with mammalian male-female bonding. And as a matter of fact, there's a wonderful new study in which they've discovered that even holding um, somebody, hugging somebody, uh, drives up levels of, of oxytocin. In fact, picking up a child, uh, when a man picks up a child, levels of testosterone go down and probably levels of oxytocin go up. What are the reactions that people have to these chemicals of oxytocin and vasopressin? Well, I think we've all felt them. You know, that sense of warmth and security and friendliness. I mean, you know, conjure up the moments that you feel after making love to somebody and everybody's had an orgasm. And and it's a sense of 
sort of a, almost a cosmic unity, uh, if you love the person, of course. Um, but also the kind of feeling when you, you're off on a business trip and you suddenly feel a, a need to for the comfort of home, and you and you call home and suddenly you feel better. Uh, levels of oxytocin and vasopressin are, are probably going up. These are associated with calm, uh, relaxation, peace, security, trust. Um, all associated with with those chemicals. Now, you also said that you looked at people who had just been jilted or dumped or crushed. Right. What happened in their brains? Well, first of all, Steve, I want to tell you how hard that was to do. You know, I interviewed all these people uh, before I put them in the machine. But people who've just been dumped are in horrible shape. I mean, there were times that I had to go step into a dark room uh, and collect myself and then go back and talk to them because uh, some of these were furious. Some of them were almost paranoid. Uh, some of them were – they were deeply depressed. I mean, it, romantic rejection is, is no joke. And um, – so what I did, um, they did the same experiment. The, um, you know, they would look at a photograph of their sweetheart, and they would also look at a neutral photograph. We found a lot of things, but among the things that we found is we found activity in a brain region, the insular cortex, where other experiments have found, shown that this particular region is associated with physical pain in the skin and muscles, not just psychological pain when you're rejected, but physical pain. We also found activity... Um, in a brain region called the nucleus accumbens. It's a brain region. This particular part of the nucleus accumbens is associated with risking, taking big risks, actually gambling, gambling for money, uh, taking big risks for big gains and big losses. And, of course, that's what you do when you've been rejected. You're just willing to do just about anything to win this person back. And then we also found activity in a brain region near the front of the brain called the lateral orbitofrontal cortex. And this brain region, this particular part of the... Um, of the cortex is associated with three things, obsessive and compulsive behaviors. And of course, you obsessively think about this person um, with controlling anger. And that's one thing that happens when you get dumped, you get angry. Most people do. And um, last but not least, this is a brain region associated with what scientists call a theory of mind. And what theory of mind is, is when people do it much probably much more than other animals, projecting yourself into another person's shoes and thinking, what is he thinking about? What is he doing? What is he planning? He's thinking about this or that. That's theory of mind. And that's what happens when you get rejected. You you feel physical pain. You're willing to take huge risks. Uh, uh, you're, you, you're constantly wondering what this other person is thinking. You're obsessively thinking about them, and you're trying to control your anger. So tell me now, what, what does... Your study of the brain and its chemistry tell us now about divorce and and also the, the species, too, because you, you seem to look at the whole ecology of the human as you're sorting through this. Um, well, you know, I, I wrote a book, uh, a different book, um, about divorce uh, called Anatomy of Love. I looked at divorce in 58 societies through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations, and I I was expecting to find the seven-year itch, and that's what I was hoping to find, but I didn't find it. I found over and over people tend to divorce during and around the fourth year of marriage. First of all, I was astonished that there was any pattern at all, given the wide range of people that there are, the wide range of cultural beliefs. But there is a pattern, and it began to occur to me that maybe we evolved this four-year itch um, to stay together at least long enough to raise a single child through infancy, about four years. What is the secret of making love last? I mean, can you tell us what you found about this? 
I, I want to say, first of all, that there's very nice data that in long-term attachments, you can make love less. That indeed, if it's a very good relationship, there often is a, a continual thread of romantic love in the relationship as well as deep attachment to the person. You'll feel the romantic love when you're on a vacation, when suddenly you go out on a date with your husband or wife, when something fun happens, when he cracks a joke, when he's wearing a beautiful suit, et cetera, et cetera. It can come back. But anyway, one of the ways to sustain romantic love in a long-term marriage is to do novel, exciting, slightly dangerous things together because novelty drives up uh, the activity of dopamine in the brain. This is why vacations can be so exciting, just doing something new. Helen Fisher's book is called Why We Love the Nature and Chemistry of Romantic Love. Thank you so much, Helen Fisher. Thank you. Let's fall in love. Why shouldn't we fall in love? Our hearts are made of it. Let's take a chance. Why be afraid of it? Let's close our eyes and make our own paradise. Little we know of it, still we can try to make a go of it. Why shouldn't we fall in love? Now is the time for it while we are young. Let's fall in love. We leave you this week with the sound of harmonizing hormones from the animal world. Jonathan Storm recorded these two male elk. Their competing testosterone-driven calls for female companions echo across a high meadow on an autumn evening in Yellowstone National Park. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Rachel Gottbaum, Ingrid Lobet, and Susan Shepard, with help from Christopher Bolick, Kelly Cronin, James Kerwood, and Michelle Queter. Our interns are Bobby Bascom and Emily Taylor. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, 
organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. Ten percent of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.